I, uh, last Monday, been a busy week, been a big week in our family. Last Monday, I took my dad to the ER for what turned out to be a nine-hour evaluation. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it was a long and difficult day of labs, um, followed by waiting, and tests, more waiting, and not much to eat, in fact, nothing, waiting, um, doctors, waiting, procedures, waiting, and medicines, some more waiting, and finally, finally, discharge papers. Uh, I felt like I had been paroled, frankly. I'm not going to kid you. Uh, it was a big day, and they always are in the ER, if you're familiar with that setting. And my dad, how did he do? Uh, fussy? Irritated? Grumpy? Not a word. Not a word. Nine hours, did I mention that? Not a word of that. He was content and quietly at peace all nine hours. Now, if you, if you don't hear anything else I say, um, you, you should want to know what's his secret sauce, okay? And ask me or ask him. Go by and say hi and ask him. He'll give you a cookie, and he'll explain why. Okay? But um, we, during those nine hours, we covered the gamut. We talked about silly things, like we had that ongoing conversation, which of us is more handsome than the other? Come on, Dad, really? Um, and then we talked about all the way to the other extreme, serious things like a pulsed. I don't know if you know about a pulse. Most people know them as advanced directive, but it's an advanced directive that's on steroids. And it basically stands for Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. It was part of our conversation. Um, at the end, the doctor poked his head into my dad's room one more time and said, you guys are free to go. Uh, he asked this question of my dad. So, Larry, how are you? And I decided in the moment that I would answer the question for my dad. And I said, well, Doc, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Dad's kind of disappointed. And the doctor's look was like, Ugh. you know, here we go. And I said, let me tell you why. My dad literally thought that being here today was the answer to a long prayer, that he would turn from this point home to heaven to be with his Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And clearly, that's not going to happen yet. <laughs> you, you, you must have been there because the doctor went, <laughs> I am so glad to hear that. Um, it's really true. If you have someone like my dad or 
some family member that you might be there with in a setting that's extreme. And you know that they know this could be their past to come home. Man, tell everybody, every nurse, we did all day long. And we told the doc at the end of the day. Uh, And me, how was I? Well, I was uh, very present for nine hours next to my dad and very much at peace as the hours slowly slipped away. I was. Then at the nine-hour mark, I walked to the other end of the hospital from the ER to the pharmacy to pick up uh, home antibiotics that would help my dad fully uh, recover. And um, uh, pretty simple stuff. I know how to get there, and uh, there's an inner hallway that's literally a football field in length. So you get there, and you take a number. And then you stand, usually a few minutes, and there's like 10 counters. And you start to hear this robotic voice that says, uh, you know, now it, it announces to everybody, now serving P239 at counter number seven. And then a little bit later, it'll be now serving P240 at counter four. And it goes on like that. And I stood there holding my number and I kept holding it, and I'm staring, I've got my glasses, and I'm, I'm like, no. And, and I stood there for a full half hour to get a simple jar of medicine, antibiotics. Uh, they finally called my number, but i got to tell you something. I was ticked. I see all these people. This is worse than in and out when you have your number at in and out and they call somebody ahead of you. That's just not right. But this is, after nine hours of waiting, our chance, we've been emancipated. It's time to leave. You're free to go, remember? And I'm standing there, and I finally get my jar of pills, and I told this lady about it. I said, I just want you to know, and I briefly kind of captured the day. And, um, and then I left, And I started back to the ER, and I looked down at this jar of pills, and I could count. There was one pill for every minute that I stood there. (laughs) Not kidding you. There were 30 pills in this thing. And I I just, it kind of grated at at me. And and as I walked that long hallway, um, about to bust my dad out of that place, I actually heard a whisper. From the Holy Spirit. And he said, Steve, you know, you still have some room to grow in, uh, in the patience part of your life. Wanted to take all the pills myself right then. I mean, no, seriously, I heard the Holy Spirit say, bro, this... Dad, you'll get your dad home, and I did. That night I got dad home, and I got him settled. But I could hear that voice in that long, lonely hallway. And then that night, before I went to bed, God gave me a message for you. Um, only 
as with most messages, it was important that, that, that actually I hope you'll find very important and timely for you. It had to work its way through me. And that's the honest confession on the front end. This isn't something I've got down. This is something I pretty much, after nine hours of shining, Holy Spirit control and everything, I just went, hold on, I'll take care of this. Hey, you know how long I've stood? So, I hope that gives you ears to hear something that's real to me. But this message is for you, but before it comes out of me, it had to make its way in me. And that, that's true. It came from the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned, and it, it came through the Apostle Paul. Um, it was first intended for a group of young Christians, actually, in South Greece in a city known as Corinth. And you know it by First and Second Corinthians. If you have your Bible this morning, uh, let me have you turn to the 10th chapter of First Corinthians. But as you're turning, let me tell you something. More than a few of you, and this is encouraging to me, asked where is the sermon uh, outline? Where are your notes today? And I, um, I remember thinking, you know, the week was short, and uh, let's, let's not do that today. So they weren't misplaced. They just weren't done. And uh, that was helpful because our very own Judy uh, would have had to stay here and do that, and she had a flight to catch, and you get it. So anyway, that's, that's where we are. But um, so Paul wrote this letter. Actually, um, Paul visited this church for a year and a half, and he did so on what is known as his second missions trip. We've just finished the first one. We'll come to that again very soon as we begin or resume our study in Acts, and we're going to get to his second, and there's a third and a fourth missions journey, third at least. And um, and, uh, so 1 Corinthians 10 is part of this letter that Paul wrote to those young Christians. Now, as you, most of you have that section in the New Testament, and by the way, if you don't know where that is, I should start giving you page numbers. Um, some of you just use your phone, that's cool, but there's page numbers, and they correspond to the Bibles that are in chair racks in front of you. Uh, feel free to just look it up in the index at the table of contents. That's cool. No one's going to go, whoa, you don't know where you're going. It's fine. That's how I found my way around the Bible, and, and eventually you know your way. So, um, so let me say this. Someone has said learning history is easy. Any history majors here? No? Uh, any church history people here? I know John and I and some others. Yeah, uh, Some of my most fascinating classes was the church history, Kenneth Scott Lauderette, a brilliant writer in those things. But learning history is easy. You just pay attention and follow the timeline, and it's exciting. But the quote ends this way, learning its lessons is nearly impossible. In other words, we see stuff in history, like Edmund Burke. The name might be familiar to you. He lived in yesteryear. He was a British statesman, and he wrote really insightful things from the 18th century. Um, He was a student himself of history. And he was the one who famously said this, 
those who uh, don't know history, you can probably help me finish it, are destined to repeat it. That was Edmund Burke. If you think about it, I'm a parent. How many of you are parents this morning? Okay, and how many of you, uh, if you're not a parent, you have parents? (laughs) Kind of covers us all, right? Or you had parents, maybe they were with the Lord or whatever. But um, if you think about it, I was thinking about being a parent of three. And parental advice is often uh, taking lessons you've learned along the way, and you see your child about to sort of trail off or take a path, and you, you know you're not being bold or you're not even being, um, you know, sort of obnoxious. You just know in your heart where that path goes. Why? Because you were on it. That gives you some cred, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, I've been there. I know what that will do. I know what I, actually how it turns out with rare exceptions. So that's kind of what parenting is. And as a result of those lessons, as painful as they were in your past, you, you remember them and you share them with your people and your people would be wise to listen. That's just kind of common parenting child relationship. Unfortunately, not just with kids, but with others that you might say, you know that one time, and you tell a story from your past, and you can see their, their eyes roll, you know, glaze in, and, and they ignore. They just, they're not going to take it in. And, um, and, and not everybody does. Now, let me give you a quick example. How many of you were warned somewhere along the way by a mom or a dad, don't play with fire? Look at that, okay. And how many strictly followed that counsel? A <laughs> couple of you? Good. Um, you know, and uh, when I was a child, I was warned with the same. Um, and, and it was a warning that came from somebody that had a story to tell. But in ignoring it, guess who now has a story to tell? Okay, and, and I got burned, and it, it provided something for me, a lesson, so that I get to tell my kids. We love campfires. Um, I get to tell them, hey, you know what? If you're not careful here, I'm not an anti-campfire. We love them. We have a fire pit in the backyard, and we take one. We, we, go, we have campfires every camping trip. But be careful. And um, one time I wasn't so careful, and I literally caught my pant leg on fire. I mean, jeans burned. Did you know that? It was ridiculous. I mean, just wrecked a good pair of jeans. It was really awkward to have one leg all the way down and the other sort of tattered halfway up. Okay? So I've got my story. Um, And I'm right now resisting uh, some temptation to tell you a whole whole bunch more. But... um, Uh, here's the deal. This is what I'm saying. God leverages lessons from history to help his people walk well today. If you're writing stuff down, write that down because it's absolutely true. People have said to me over the years, well, what's the big deal of the Old Testament? It's for your benefit, Jack. 
It's meant for your purposes. It tells a story, comma, so you can be better and live better and avoid mistakes. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's true. I think that's Romans 15, verse 13. That's why I'm fascinated, and more than just to, you know, stroke my November beard, uh, but fascinated by what people did before. Because I want to know. So God leverages lessons of history to help his people walk better. Today, So in a spiritual way, the message of history is clear. God is saying, if you learn from mistakes my people have made in the past, that's the biggest if in that whole sentence. If you learn from mistakes my people made in the past, you can avoid repeating those mistakes today. Okay, that's the take home. Here's the deal. Paul had been discussing what it takes to do something that was a high priority in his life, and that is to finish well. He did not want to be disqualified from the race. He wanted to win the prize instead. So he says in chapter 9, verse 27, 27 I strike a blow to myself and make my body, my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Y'all, I know you're thinking that, that works for preachers. No way. It works for all of us. It's counsel that says, buffet your body, make it your slave, lest after you preach truth to others, you might be a train wreck. And Paul was passionate about that. And here's the deal. As far as we can tell, he fulfilled that. But not everyone does. Which explains uh, the real serious tone in chapter 10. That This is what the Holy Spirit gave me. Um, he points to, Paul is now, pointing to that first century early church. And he's pointing to people who, will you write this down? They had it all. They had it all. But most missed out on the prize. So this is their story. Would you write down the first principle? Here it is. Sometimes having it all is no help at all. Sometimes having it all is no help at all. Hopefully you're taking a look at things. Some of you are thinking money. Got so much money, I don't know what to do. Um, Okay, maybe that's it. Maybe that's in play today. Um, Some of you think, you you know, you've just got the greatest job in the world. I have it all got the coolest home in the world. I got 
amazing family, wonderful wife. You making your list? So, sometimes having it all is no help at all. Look at verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors... So, this is Paul in first century talking about our ancestors. So, he's going back centuries to the Old Testament. They were all under the cloud. Look at how many times the word all repeats. All under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea... They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So let's just stop for a second, mid-sentence. Paul is talking about ancestors to him. And definitely, you could kind of call it double ancestors to us. These are folks that went way back. They had it all. And Paul then describes some of the perks that they had as God's people. Okay, just like I had you think about the perks that you and I have. When we say, yeah, I have it all. So Paul's listing these. Notice the list we just read. We're going to go on. But we read in verse 1, the first on the list is all were guided by God. All of them. He led his people A very cool way. I'm just going to confess I'm envious of this. I've always been envious of this. They had a fire that moved at night and a cloud that moved in the day. So how many understand fire and clouds? Okay. In Oregon, I know there are clouds everywhere right now. But we know what the story is about. And you guys, I didn't bring my phone, but I got a... I got a way to get me anywhere, a GPS on my phone, maps or whatever it is, and I know how to get places, ways, whatever you use. It's, it's like the modern day map if you haven't heard of those things. But here's the deal. This was even better because you know what a map uh, uh, app will do? It'll take me where I want to go. The Lord that guided his people had a pillar of fire, right? And, and a cloud that guided his people where he wanted them to go. So it's way better. I've, I've thought that forever. Um, so they all had that. They didn't just have to kind of blindly walk along and follow Mo. He knows where he's going. No, I'm talking Moses, right? This is the Exodus. No, they could see with their eyes. Hey, that, that, that pillar of fire, it's moving. Get up, everybody, let's go. Hey, the cloud, let's follow it. Okay? Secondly, they were all rescued by God. This is so amazing. Verse 1, um, I should have looked up the word obsessed. Is that a good word? Can be, right? Some of us are obsessed with dark chocolate, right? <laughs> um, I'm not sure I want to use the word obsessed to describe a miracle in the Bible. Let me just leave it this way. It's the most talked about miracle in the Bible that he's getting to in verse 1 here. The people of God were delivered. They were rescued by God. From whom? 
the pursuing Egyptian enemies that, that wanted their hide. And they backed them into a proverbial corner. They took them to the edge of the Red Sea, and there's no way out. You're going to die by the sword or by drowning. But either way, if you were a, an Israeli, a, a Jew, you were a goner. All passed through the sea. Oh my. You know what that means? Here's how it's said in Psalm 77 verse 19. Just one of the many places that talks so much about that miracle. It's, um, if you're a music artist, you have a song that you're remembered by. Um, uh, somebody died this weekend. Forget her name. Huh? Forget the song. It's Yeah, it's that song. Um, anyway, they are known for that. Darn it, what is it? Say it loud. Flash dance. What a feeling. Right? We remember. I don't know her name because I don't pay attention, but... Um, she, she's, when the news broke, she's gone. It, it was told that this is her signature song. She's known for that. If God had a signature miracle, I'm pretty sure it would be close to the top. Obviously, the raising of his son would be at the top. But it would be this God delivered them, they passed through the sea. Here's how it's said in Psalm 77. Verse 19, and you need to write that verse down and look it up in NLT, New Living Translation. It reads this way. Your road led through the sea. Y'all, we have to move fast, but let your brain take that in. Through the sea? That doesn't happen. He's not done. Your pathway through the mighty waters. And he finishes it with this, a pathway no one knew was there. There's not one person in two million that were there that went, I knew that was going to happen. I saw it coming. What a dumb idea. No, you didn't. No one did. We all were dead in our minds, and you knew it. So did I. And God delivered his people. Notice thirdly, verse 2, we read it already, all were united by God um, with their leader, Moses. Um, in Moses, their ancestors, Paul, the ones that he's talking about, were cared for. God didn't, in other words, God didn't say everybody for himself or herself. They said, no, follow Moses. He'll lead the way. And that meant that they left Egypt, and made their way in haste. Remember, it was in the middle of the night. Get up and go. Under strong, secure leadership, Moses. Uh, verse 3 adds, they were all provided. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Verse 3 and 4. All provided for by God. Um, they had plenty of provision 
And you know that, right? You know that? No one starved to death. But do you know that they had plenty of provision in a land that produces nothing? Nothing. In a land that grows nothing. It has less than four inches of rainfall a year. Now all of a sudden we're sitting forward in our seat. We're going, whoa, that's a big deal. That's God saying, I got plenty to provide you with food every day. And here's the grabber. God delivered that food daily. They were in tents, remember? To the front flap of their tent every day. Imagine that. You pitch your tent, you wake up, breakfast, lunch, and dinner is sitting right there, and it won't spoil if you eat it today. What a cool thing. God did that throughout their journey. Um, the stuff's called manna. You can check it out in Exodus 16. All of these realities are there. But, and then next, all were, were, were protected by Christ. Verse 4, he even uses the word Jesus. We know it as a rock. The people were thirsty. So they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And the rock has a name. Christ. What a beautiful picture. It's, it's in the same way Christ offered, you can read it in John chapter 4, one of the gospels in the New Testament. Jesus is the spiritual thirst quencher. So it's an analogy. It says you're thirsty, and everybody that's thirsty, Isaiah 55 says the same thing. Come to me, and I will satisfy your thirst, just like I satisfied my people wandering in the wilderness. For years, I provided them plenty to drink. So my point here is they had it all. Um, can I be bold enough to say so do we? But when we read verse 5, we can see it was no help at all. Nevertheless, what a word. They had, they had, they had, they had, they had. God took care of it all. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. With most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. In spite of the tremendous treatment that showed up daily from a God that watches over his people, most of them didn't please him. Let me frame this in a, in a way that you won't forget. In spite of God's constant care, only, you ready for this? Would you look up at me when I say it? Only two people out of two million people. That's the word most. Only two. Wow. Only two walked well and pleased God. You say, no, come on, can that be true? Yeah, Joshua and Caleb are their names. There's only two that were allowed to survive the journey of 40 years and make it into the land. Deuteronomy 1 will tell you all those details. It raises a really good question. How have you responded to God's goodness toward you? You and I have been given it all. 
in the gift of God's son, Jesus. So does it show in the stuff of our lives, the way we live daily? I love the song today that involved choosing. It's on the entryway of our home. Choose this day whom you will serve. A quotation of Joshua. Not surprisingly, one of the two that made it in chapter 24 when he wrote his memoirs. Um, so does, does having it all show up in your life and your attitude? It didn't for a spell in the hospital for me the other day. Um, these words describe them that we've been talking about and had a probing effect on me. Listen to them. The presence of supernatural privileges, and we have many of them, did not produce guaranteed success. End quote. Very true. Is that true of you? The last few minutes are going to help you with that. Sometimes having it all is of little help. Second principle, would you write this down? Learning from people's mistakes, other people's mistakes can help us avoid repeating them. All right? Will you please, with your Bible still open, fix your eyes on the next verse. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Avoid what's next for a moment. Drop down to verse 11. These things happened. He repeats himself to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Twice we're told these things happened as examples for us. Why would you preserve dirty laundry? Except you want future generations to learn from it and go, don't do what I did, or what we did. Um... So what were their mistakes? Let's just quickly click through them and draw this to a close. Um, it starts in verse 6. These things happened as examples um, so that, that we would not set our hearts on evil things as they did. Would you write down the word cravings? That's the word there, cravings. Um, Setting your hearts on evil things. That's what's going on there in verse 6. Uh, they saw what their ungodly neighbors had, and they desired the same. To put it bluntly, they saw their neighbors had fancy food. They had a lot of different things at the table. And God's people had one item, manna. That's it. And... They desired this, they craved this other. Numbers chapter 11 says it. You know what was missing? Contentment. God gave you all you need for your present happiness and you went, what did he, what did he get? What did they get? God's given you all you need for your present happiness. Can you get content with that? And they couldn't. As a result, they were struck with a plague and buried, ready for this, in a place called the Graves of Craving. You're saying, where is that? Numbers 11, verse 34, you can look it up. 
So, the first was cravings. The next, verse 7, idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And as written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. They allowed other gods to sit on the throne of their lives. What is an idol? Anybody else but Jesus sitting on the throne of you to bring it down to where we live. Anything. I, I have a whole bunch more I could say about that, but Exodus 32 is where this story unfolded in, in their experience. But I would just tell you this, that it seems to me, and I, I, could have, I could be slightly off in saying this, but it seems to me in America, the most common false god that calls the shots is money. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's totally true of you or me, but I sure think it's in play. Here's the third. We're moving quickly. Verse 8, sexual immorality. Do you see that? We should not commit sexual immorality as they did. And one day, 23, here's a terrible scourge, head count. 23,000 of them died from sexual immorality. It's a very graphic story from Numbers chapter 25. You need to go there and look it over. But it, it involves something that God gave them in a beautiful context. Intimacy with a spouse, a husband or a wife, and it, and it, and it got out of there. It, it, in fact, became this thing with the Israelites and the Moabites, and it was a mess. It was a large-scale mess. Next one, verse 9. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by the snakes. Testing God is a very serious thing. Do not trifle with God. Our world trifles with God today, doesn't it? The Bible's saying don't do that. A forbidden practice of showing pride, presumptive pride, and sort of an arrogance. Don't go there. Um, yeah. See the snakes? The people were bitten by poisonous snakes. The story is told in Numbers 21. And uh, the cure was taking a, a serpent and putting a golden serpent on a pole and holding it up. And anybody that was bitten by a snake for testing God could look at that golden serpent and be healed. Right? Guess who used this to describe himself? On a cross. Jesus did when he was talking to Nicodemus in the New Testament. John chapter 3. And he says the son of man will be like that snake lifted up. He doesn't say snake. He says the son of man will be lifted up. And anybody that looks to him. That doesn't mean just throw a glance and get on with your life. It means turns to Jesus. Will have the effects of sin. Resolved. It's called forgiveness. Isn't that great? So good. Um, I want to close my Bible right now, but don't do that. Because there's one surprising sin, in, and it ends the list. It's verse 10. It's, do not grumble. Now you know why this came to mind in the hospital? 
Do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. It's a strange, in my mind, it's a strange sin to make the list. Do you find it weird? I mean, help me out, people. Throw me a bone. Is it weird? It's weird, isn't it? I mean, we've got big stuff here. Sexual immorality. Idolatry? Are you kidding me? Those are big sins. Testing God? Don't go there. But grumbling? How's that a big deal? By the way, pastor, we're Americans. Have you forgotten? We don't like something. We let them know. We're protesters. In fact, that's part of being Protestant. It is. I hate to admit it, but it's true. It's like you get mad at me, you get tired of me, you can replace me. You know, or whatever. You can leave your church because it doesn't all roll your way. People do that. Um, How is that such a big deal? Here's how. Grumbling has a core identity. It's revolting against God's authority. It's really a whoa. It's God saying, I want you to do this, and you go, whoa, wait your turn, bro. Seriously. I cringe saying that. But if we don't obey, it's kind of a version of that. Verse 10 is a reference to the people of God who in Numbers 14 revolted against God. And um, they did so because they made a wrong assumption. Somehow God had set the people free. They went through the sea, a pathway no one knew was there. And God did that because he wanted to get them good and alone in the wilderness and kill them off. Hello, genius. That's not true. It's just not. How we come up with stuff like that, but they did. It's, it's, it's a reality that they had it all and found a way to gripe and protest God's provision. I had everything on Monday in the way of great care for my dad. And I stunk up the place at the pharmacy. Thankfully, I didn't throw a tantrum. I just made one lady go, I want to get away. You know. History, it seems, has plenty to teach us. And as it turns out, learning history is easy, isn't it? Every one of us are taking this in right now. You're hooked. I am too. But the deal is, lessons that history provide are another thing altogether. I want to give you a self-assessment or an analysis that became my takeaway from this study. How teachable are you? It's really at the heart of this. Everything I've said, I haven't made up. I'm not embellishing any stories. That's just what happened in their experience. I'm just reporting it, really reading it with a 
color commentary along the way. So that's, that's real. The question is, has it become real to me? Is it something that I've personalized? I'll use a good word for it. I think it's, a, it's the word I use for myself. Are you teachable, Steve? Are you capable or are you capable of looking back at them and going, naughty, naughty. What an adventure in missing the point when we do that. Do you hear what history is saying to you? What history is speaking to you right now? I, I think you do. I don't need to impress that point. Do you take history's lessons to heart? This one knocked me over. Pretty good in the other columns. Not completely good, but pretty good. And then I went grumbling. No, I don't want to go that far with this study. And it's like he went, no, that's the point here. Or are you one of those people that smirks saying, you know something, I see how it happened there. Those, those, you know, poor people, those bad people. That won't happen to me. Folks, maybe, maybe not. But you wouldn't be the first person who thought that way and ignored history's lessons and paid a very, very dear price. Proverbs 29, verse 1 says, If you hear a story, hear a, forget my message, it's not about me, hear the Holy Spirit talking to you, and you harden your heart after much reproof, comma, in the end, you will be broken, and there will be no remedy. Here's the parting principle. Don't ignore others' mistakes or you are sure to repeat them. You probably guessed that there's a couple of practical takeaways. There have been those all through this message. Um, here's the first. You can leave here and believe foolishly that you are so strong that your spiritual life... Um, is sound and solid and needs no improvement or correction. And I, I, I'm not trying to insult anybody. I just, I'm not sure that a human on this planet can ever really honestly say that. Um, and no, no, no diss on those saint-like people you and I know. I'm just in awe of them. I just have to try not to stare. They're just amazing. Um, about the time you start believing that you've got things squared away, um, something will show up. Don't be proud and don't be arrogant, but instead be humble. That's the first takeaway. To put it another way, if you come to the end of this history lesson from God's Word and you, you have something approaching a smug spirit that goes, ugh, glad he's done. 
then you need to read verse 12. We didn't go there. Therefore, to the one who thinks he stands firm, be careful that you don't fall. See? That's how it looks. Um, instead, here's a better way. Believe wisely that just like those folks that fell before us, probably more than a few wanted to walk well, I'm guessing. Um, we too are capable of doing what they did, and that's to crash and burn. The temptations they faced are exactly like those that we face, aren't they? No temptation. Um, God has promised, though, for us as he did for them, a way of escape, and that's verse 13. No temptations overtaking you except what is common to other people. And God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation, he will provide, what's it say there? A way of escape. I was heading the wrong path, and I, I made a good choice to get off that. So every lesson we've considered from the lives of these, um, let's call them ancients this morning, including grumbling, um, is meant for my benefit for yours. Personally, I'm seeking, so you know I didn't just preach to myself, and I'm not just preaching to you, but I'm seeking uh, to do things differently, to actually be thankful always. Think what I just said. I know that will be tested, but I want to be grateful always, thankful everywhere, at home, at work, at school, Everywhere. Behind the wheel. Even the ER and the pharmacy. If your takeaway is similar to mine, may I humbly suggest that you do something active today about that. Here's what I'm doing. What I've already started doing. Don't feed your grumpy, grumpy spirit. Don't feed your grumbling heart. Stay away from things like certain people. Yes, he really said that. Yes, I did. If you have a stinker in your life, you do not have to smell them. Stay away from them. And when they ask you, well, you know, how come we're not getting together for coffee? You know what? You drag me down. You're just so, like... It's like you, like you got baptized in lemon juice or something. You just so grumpy. Stay away from. But there, it's there's easier ones that you can do. Stay away from the news. I have a growing group of friends that say I don't watch the news. These are people I used to say, "Hey, what's happening in the world?" And they'd fill me in. And you know what? They're nicer people today. They're easier people to be around. And here's, one, here's another one that's fairly obvious. Stay away from almost everything on TV. 
you're going to save 150 bucks from your Comcast bill anyway, so it's a good thing. Instead, since you've been raised up with Jesus, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, setting your mind on the things above, not on the things that tick you off at the pharmacy. Amen? Would you bow your heads? We're going to sing a song. We're going to finish up here, Lord, with uh, you speaking in quietness to the hearts of your people. You've done that to me, and I'm, I'm thankful that I can even confess some, some, some kind of uh, unpleasantries that were part of my life last Monday. I thank you for the example of my dad in that long day. I want to be that man every day. And can I just tell you something, folks? This is not a philosophy. If you do not have Jesus in your heart, no wonder you're discontent and grumpy. Would you just turn to him right now? If you're watching from some other place, he does not want any to perish but for all to come to repentance. But he lets you decide. He lets you choose. Would you turn to him? Say, Jesus, my heart, I am a grumpy, gripey person. And I, I want a permanent fix. He says, then turn to me. Repent of your sin right now. Let me in. And he'll give you something to be eternally thankful for. If you've done that today, I want to hear from you. You can write me, steve at gracepointfamily.com. S-T-E-V-E, gracepointfamily.com.